Welcome to a conversation powered by Connected Learning, where we chat with some of today's leading minds about new learning approaches designed for the demands and opportunities of the digital age. Connected Learning values the new ways many young people today access information, gain expertise, and learn alongside peers and mentors using the internet, social networks, and digital technology. We're excited you're here to join the conversation as we seek to make learning relevant. Hi everyone, this is John Barilloni, Community Manager for the Connected Learning Alliance, and today we're talking with Philip Schmidt about connected learning, peer-to-peer -peer learning, and open learning. Hi, Philip. Hey, John. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Our pleasure. So, Philip is an open education activist, innovator, and entrepreneur who helped co-found Peer-to-Peer University, um, it's commonly referred to as P2PU, a free and open community for learning just about anything online. And Philip is based at the MIT Media Lab near Boston, where he works to make the web a platform for learning. And Philip, I know in all your work from the past few years, especially, you really value whenever learning occurs into occurs in either a peer-to-peer -peer or an open way. And for those who might not be as familiar with those phrases, could you explain a little bit more about how peer-to-peer -peer learning and open learning benefits young learners? Sure. Um, and, and actually, it doesn't. I, I think it doesn't just benefit young learners, but really, or young learners of all ages. Uh, let's put it this way. Um, and uh, there's there are a couple of things that are special about peer-to-peer -peer learning. One is um, a kind of the obviously, you know, if you're trying to learn something new, it's useful to have some people around you that you can ask questions if you get stuck. Um, but also, it turns out it's a really good way of learning something if you get to teach it to someone else. So, you know, if you have people who are learning the same thing and they may get stuck and they ask you a question and you end up explaining it to them, I think we've probably all had that experience where by explaining it to someone else, we discovered something new about this thing that we thought we were already, we already knew quite well. And then in the last few years, uh, there's been a lot of research um, on kind of important learning skills. And it, it turns out that by being a peer learner, you end up almost like a, as a side benefit, you develop a lot of skills like communication, really listening to other people, uh, but also explaining to them what you kind of what your position is, uh, collaborating with other people, uh, you know, emp uh, I'm, I always get this word wrong, empathizing, uh, you know, which is really trying to look at something through from the perspective of someone else. Those are all things that you do uh, kind of automatically if you're peer learning. And it turns out that those are really important skills, non-cognitive skills that, that people are now saying may actually be more important than some of the cognitive things we've been focusing on for long-term success as a learner. So, so there's some magic in peer learning. You know, I personally also just love the idea that you, you do it with other people and you build really strong and, and often lasting relationships with them, right? Like some of my best friends are people I met at school or university, um, and and open learning, um, open learning is a is a tricky term because in a way it's actually I think the the way I think of open learning it's almost a misnomer because when I describe open learning I feel like that's what we should call we, we should use the term learning to describe this, and just because so much learning these days is locked away in institutions and schools and and universities and really doesn't seem to have much to do with the real world, did we have to add the, you know, the open to the learning to, to kind of signal that um, there is a different way of learning. But 
you know, maybe one way of describing open versus closed for me is, you know, if you're learning, if, if, you're, if you're interested in science, like you could either learn about science, you could learn about physics and read a textbook about physics, or you could start to be a scientist where you take, you know, you do the first experiment, you get it wrong and you, you tinker with, with it and you try it again. And, you know, as you're doing that, you, you're building up the background knowledge as needed. And uh, for me, open really uh, uh, says that there's agency of the learner and that there's full participation. And uh, I think those are just good learning practices. And, and um, the, yeah, I think that's kind of my definition of open. That's great, really helpful. And you mentioned school a couple times there. And it seems to me there's this, there seems to be a bit of a tension, I would say. You'd say peer-to-peer -peer learning or you say open learning. And the immediate pictures I get are, you know, examples I've seen where it's outside of the school system, um, things like peer-to-peer -peer university, where you can learn online with other people. And just wanted to see, where do you see peer learning fitting within the, you know, four walls of the school system? Yeah, well, it's actually interesting because um, one way of, of looking at this question is if you really try to understand how people learn at university, like the, the, the first image that comes to mind is to, you know, you, you think about, well, how are people spending their time? They're sitting in lectures, reading textbooks and, and doing homework. And those are all important aspects of the, the experience. But what a very large study at Harvard has shown is that really the most important uh, indicator of someone's success as, a, as an undergrad student at Harvard is, are they able to find other people to learn with? So I think they said it's the ability to identify or start study groups. Um, so peer learning is already happening. It's just kind of on the sides and it's already happening and important, but, but it's not really the, you know, what we think of as formal education. So it's happening in these institutions. It's happening in schools and universities. It's really important for for, for the students, uh, but I wish that the the institutions would embrace it a little more and endorse it and support it, rather than uh, it being something that happens on, uh, along the edges uh, of of what the what the institutions think uh, learning should look like. Fair enough. It kind of makes it feel like it's a, a back alley sort of situation. Exactly. Yes, you have to sneak. We used to sneak out to smoke, but now people have to sneak out to peer learn. <laughs> and I know there's been a lot of talk lately, um, kind of in the same circles that we run in, that there's this need to give education an update for the 21st century to bring it out of the 20th century. Um, and what would you say that the formal education world has collectively been doing right to enable this kind of update? And where do you think we could still improve? Yeah, I, and I suspect um, you have a somewhat similar perspective being at the place where you're at, which you're kind of on the fringes of a, of a very large institution. I've, I've always liked that space kind of a little bit outside, a little bit inside where you get a, a view of, the, the institution, but also, you know, what kind of you can uh, a little bit critique it from the outside. So um, I, I want to I say that there's a lot of rhetoric at the moment around disrupting education. And I'm a little uncomfortable with that because, uh, first of all, I'm skeptical of the claims that are being made, how, you know, how the future will be so much better. And also partly because often the people who are making those claims have done extremely well and benefited, you know, a lot from the existing system that they're now setting out to disrupt. So 
I kind of prefer the framing of hacking, uh, but in the original MIT sense, which is, you know, playful engagement with the system in order to improve it. And sometimes that means breaking the rules, but it's not, you don't set out to break the rules just to break the rules or just to change the system. You, you, you want to tinker with the system. And so when, when I think about the institutions, I think it's very important to remember that they have done some amazing things. Like we, you know, arguably schools and, and universities are the most important institutions for our societies that we have created. And they have given access to learning to a huge number, unprecedented number of people. Okay. So I, I, I think we should be really careful that when we're talking about innovation and, and disruption and, and hacking education, that we don't uh, discount all the amazing things that the people inside those institutions ha have accomplished. And then, so that's kind of my in, uh, um, careful perspective. And then the thing that I'm really frustrated by is that the institutions seem um, are faced with this possibility or opportunity, right? Like uh, personal computers and the internet are really fundamental changes to how we can engage with learning and other people. And I would love to see the innovation coming from the people who care deeply and, and have a track record of caring for students and, and learning. And those are people who work in schools and universities, but they seem the most scared in a way, right? They see this as a threat. So there's some inertia that I find very frustrating. It's, it's kind of the, this is the way we've always done it. And, you know, we're going to use technology to basically do it the same way that we've always done it, which is, you know, we're going to stream lectures on video now. But really the innovation should go much deeper and it should be uh, the, the uh, you know, the people in the institutions, you know, hopefully we'll see that there are opportunities to do things that they care about, which is really teach and learn. Uh, in better ways. And um, so that's kind of my, I guess, my frustration and my hope for working with institutions that the people who care so deeply about the learners will get more involved in, in changing their own institutions. Totally makes sense. And it sounds like um, what you're describing there without explicitly saying it is the MOOC system, where it does seem to be that just scaled up version of what we're used to seeing in classrooms. Uh, are there examples out there right now of kind of either, you know, spin-offs of MOOCs or anti-MOOCs that you think have been really working well? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think there's a whole number. I mean, I'm a little hesitant to talk about a project that we were involved in, but I know that's the project I know the best. And I think learning creative learning, which is a partnership between the Media Lab and P2PU, um, you know, it took a traditional or you know, somewhat traditional university course that's being offered at the Media Lab to Harvard and MIT students, and it moved it online and it created a very large community of people around this set of materials and you know we spend a lot of time thinking about how do you capture the type of learning that happens here at the media lab and then move that online and we weren't so interested in scaling it necessarily to um, tens of thousands of people i mean it was great to get a large number because you can do things with large communities that you can't do with small ones but really what's much more important is the kind of the individual engagement and that a few people you know have a really meaningful experience um, and so I would say learning creative learning is a good example for at least tinkering with the model. And maybe that's another um, uh, um, wish that more people, uh, you know, rather than we really don't know where all this is going. And, you know, anyone who says they do, you know, I, I would question that, that they really do. 
but this is a, such an amazing time and opportunity to experiment. And so, you know, we're experimenting with it. We've actually, we've been very open also about the fact that we, we, we are experimenting, that this is a big um, prototype and that we want people to give us feedback and help us improve it. And so, you know, kind of opening up, making ourselves a little bit vulnerable, I think is really important for institutions that, you know, if you admit that you're trying to figure something out, it's amazing the, the internet uh, responds with generosity. You know, people say, hey, that's great. We'll, we'll come on board and we'll help you. And so now we have collaborators all over the world who are making suggestions, who are building new tools uh, and who are making, you know, the MIT course a better course. And, and that's great. But, you know, it's, it's, it's that process of opening up and tinkering. I think that's important. And so I, I think I've rambled a little bit. So please bring me back to, to your question <laughs> if you feel I'm, like I'm, I'm going off. No, not a problem. It's always good to hear those stories of how when you, you know, ask for help on the internet, you actually get helpful people back. And, you know, it's not just full of, you know, trolls and, and memes and things like that. <laughs> you did mention that um, you really appreciate when students have a meaningful learning experience. And that actually ties into one of the questions that we had queued up for you. Uh, one way that connected learning is being introduced to people is to say it builds on those three R's of reading, writing, and arithmetic by introducing a fourth R of relevance. So trying to make learning in the classroom relevant to life outside the classroom. And just wanted to get your take on why you feel this need for relevance is so important for like the phrase you used earlier, young learners of all ages. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, well, I mean, the, the amazing thing is that we, you have to ask me that question, right? It, it should be the other question. It should be the other way around. Like, you know, when did we ever think that people would want to learn something that they're not interested in? You know, like, why would you learn something that doesn't connect to your life or your interest in a meaningful full way? If you have no interest in that topic, then, you know, the reason to learn can really only be to, to uh, fulfill the expectations that someone else may have, a teacher or, or a parent. And, and really, that's not a great motivator in the long run. And as I know from my own experience, um, you know, uh, students can be very good at developing strategies to succeed in the system and, full, you know, learn the things that they're expected to learn. But in the, in the end, that's not really very useful for for their lives uh you know getting a good grade in something uh just because you know that's what you need to do to play the game uh shouldn't we should we should be aiming higher uh, uh in in schools and outside of schools and so i, I mean for, for me relevance uh, or or connecting to people's interests or, or connect we we actually use the the term passion kind of to to um capture this idea of motivation very broadly um is absolutely key to, to any learning experience. And we should work. The thing is, you know, people are gen genuinely curious about the world around them themselves. And so finding the thing that someone is interested in and then connecting the learning into that original interest, I think is a much better way than doing it the other, doing it, you know, in the opposite direction where first I'm going to make you learn about all these things that maybe you, you don't really see how they're relevant to your life or why you might be interested in them. And then hopefully at some point in this long experience, you'll find some piece in there where it makes sense and, and that will capture your imagination. That will drive the learning. And, you know, I, I feel like that's, uh, we're doing, we're doing it the, the wrong way around. And so relevance, um, I think is, is 
very important. But the one thing I, I do want to uh, maybe disagree with you a little bit is like the, this framing around the three R's, right, as being the basic, the, the education basics. I mean, mm -hmm. I understand where that comes from, but I think the education, the basics should really be the skills and practices that make us better learners, right? Like, I mean, sure, reading and writing and, and arithmetic are all important, but you know, sh shouldn't it be rather things like, you know, when you're curious that you know where to go and ask or the confidence to ask a question, like how do you ask a good question? How do you, how do you find someone who can help you with that question? Like th those are the kinds of things, I, you know, I wish, I wish we could, relevance should be the, the first one and then we, we could add a few other basics that go, go beyond the, just the reading, writing and arithmetic. Totally fair point. It seems it's kind of that learning how you learn best would be exactly. the better angle there. Appreciate that. Um, you know, you touched a little bit on, on this idea that peer learning uh, can help scale meaningful learning. And we talked about kind of the massive education practices out there. And I know here at the Connected Learning Alliance, uh, we're very concerned with issues of how to make these learning opportunities uh, accessible for large populations, and that kind of brings with it its own equity issues. And I wanted to see, you know, how do you think our education system and the way we think about learning in general has to evolve in order to deal with this seemingly persistent equity issue that we see? Yeah, equity is a huge issue. Um, and, and I don't think it can be solved just by one institution without taking into account the the other broader socioeconomic realities that exist around the institution. I think asking the school or the university to, to fix um, inequity is, is asking too much. And also, you know, it's maybe, I'm, again, I'm, I, f I find myself kind of on the fringes because I grew up in a country that has a very, or relatively well-functioning, you know, good public education system where all schooling and university are free uh, for pretty much anyone. Um, and so uh, th this, this dismantling of the public education system here is, is both puzzling to me. Um, and, and I just, I'm kind of standing there a little bit on the sidelines and, and I, I, I'm wondering why, I mean, this seems to be a, for me much more of a political problem than a, a school problem, you know, which is, you know, why people aren't demanding that they get access to high quality education for free when that's possible in other countries is, you know, it's, it's kind of this question that doesn't really make sense to me. But I also realize that, you know, I am on the fringes and, you know, they're, they're, I'm kind of looking in and I'm looking out. And um, so my, you know, my, my own work focuses more on you know, can we use technology to do something about equity like i don't think we can solve it i don't think technology should be we should expect technology to solve the equity problem i think we should you know we should all work together to fix the equity problem but but technology can certainly do some things and and i think some very exciting things and and things that really weren't imaginable before right like you can now reach tens of thousands of people and bring them together to work on things they want to work on, like Minecraft, for example, right? Like the, the size of the Minecraft community is just, it's actually mind boggling uh, <laughs> how, how big that community is. And, you know, if you can, if you can think of learning communities in that way, you know, people who 
have access to technology and who are curious can now connect to to other people who might be interested in the same things and who might be willing to help them uh, and become peer learners. And ultimately, that could lead back into the education system if the if the schools and universities start acknowledging that some of that learning is also uh, valid and legitimate. And um, so, you know, I think looking at technology as, is is exciting, and, and looking at technology as a way to to improve equity is is re makes me really hopeful. Um, but I also think equity is a huge uh, societal problem that we, we should not just expect uh, technology or even just the institutions to, to solve. Great insight. And I really love that picture you painted of, you know, what the future could potentially look like if we, you know, all work together. It's a great call to action. And hard to believe, but we're already at the end of our conversation here. But before we sign off, Philip, I wanted to give you a chance to explain, you know, what's the easiest way people can connect with you and or your work online? Uh, the easiest way is to go to info.p2pu.org uh, and, you know, comment on the blog or join the discussion forum and, and, and uh, get involved in the, in the conversation about how we can use technology to build better learning environments. And then I'm uh, Schmidt PHI on Twitter uh, and uh, people can just tweet at me and I'll, I'll reply and we can move it to email if that makes more sense. And um, I, yeah, I'd love to continue the conversation. Perfect. All right, Phil, thanks again for talking about Connected Learning with us. Thank you. Thanks for joining us here at the Connected Learning Alliance. If you missed any of this conversation or want to listen to more discussions, check out our website at clalliance.org or subscribe to our podcast channel on iTunes. See you back here for more talks with change makers and thought leaders who are building the next generation of learning.